Welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andrew Degler. I hope you are staying healthy and taking good care of yourself. Today we're going to talk about health, but not about the coronavirus and the quarantine. I will just leave this to the experts, but we will talk about mental health and why it could be an issue in the tech industry. Also, we will hear from Maki VC, which invests in deep tech startups from the Nordics and encourages its portfolio companies to work on branding and marketing from day one. I mentioned before that a few weeks ago I went to Riga for the Tech Chill conference, and as I was looking at the stage program at that event, I noticed two different keynotes with very similar topics. One was about mental health in tech, and the other was about the ways for a startup founder to stay happy. So I thought it was a good idea to invite both keynote speakers, Stuart Rogers and Dmitry Sarlet, for a brief conversation backstage. One of the problems I see is with the whole concept of work, right? This is Dmitry Sarlet, founder and former CEO of Arctic Startup, and his presentation at TechChill was called Founder Psychology, Work Less, Do More, Stay Happy. And if we trace the whole concept of work back to the origins of the word and uh, historically of how it came to be, really it's just slavery, right? Like uh, both the origin of the word uh, and also what it means. Right now we are living in a society which is basically like super advanced, very hidden, and sophisticated way of tricking people to work for them for money, which is a form of slavery. And I don't necessarily judge the, you know, the economics of it. What, uh, and I don't think you need to change that much in terms of the actual productivity and how you work, but you need to change as an individual because that's all the power you have. You can only change yourself, right? It's very hard to change the whole system, but you can change how you personally think about work. And what kind of work do you do and how do you do it, right? And that is the message that I was trying to bring is that if you think about work as this thing that you hate to do, that you don't want to go to work, you don't have any purpose and meaning in it, uh, you think that work is just a way to get money on the table, well, you're not going to last very long, right? Or, or if as a founder you're only chasing money and you're overworking and going uh, all in and burning out and not treating your emotional difficulties well, you're going to burn out. So I think it's about changing the mindset. Yeah, I mean, work is a really interesting thing. This is Stuart Rogers, managing editor of Grit Daily. He can be found speaking or emceeing at a lot of conferences across Europe. His keynote at Tech Chill was called Why Mental Health is Tech's Biggest Problem and How to Solve It. You know, for me, I, I look at uh, the way that we work. And the way that we work uh, is radically different from the Industrial Revolution through to now. So in the Industrial Revolution, it was quite common for people to work like 14-hour days uh, working in factories, and, and they were just literally working to death. And then uh, there was a big movement, and that movement uh, was to put in the eight hours work, eight hours recreation, eight hours sleep, um, which then, after lots of pressure, um, Henry Ford picked up on that, and that's where we got the eight-hour workday, five days a week, one day for uh, yourself and one day for worship. Now, we haven't changed that since. In fact, if you look at the amount of hours that we work worldwide across all industries, it's gone from eight hours average to something like seven hours, 45 minutes. Like we're making no progress in terms of the way that we work. Right. 
In fact, in the tech industry, it's gone worse because we've gone back to people doing 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 hour workdays, seven days a week. And that's because we have people out there who are constantly pushing this fallacy that you have to get there faster than everybody else. You've got to work harder. You've got to hustle. You've got to grind. Um, they're doing, you know, videos telling you all about this. And then we're buying into it and we're sharing these videos. And, you know, this drive to hustle and grind, this uh, sharing of these uh, opinions, is actually killing people. You know, we, we've got uh, ridiculous rates of suicide in the tech industry. Uh, we have terrible um, problems with substance abuse and all sorts of other self-harm. And this comes from this constant push to hustle and grind. I, I would like to see people change the way that they work entirely. You know, I'm currently a journalist, public speaker. I'm running six uh, startups, if you want to call them that. Um, simultaneously, I'm working about three to four hours a day. The rest of the time, I'm enjoying myself, talking to the people I love around the world, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is a very different way of working, but it's good for my physical and mental health. And it's a completely different paradigm. I'm still getting stuff done. I'm still launching things. I'm still putting products and services out there. Um, but I'm staying healthy and unstressed. And I'd like to see more people take on that style of work because I think uh, there needs to be a big change. Everything else has moved. Technology has gone faster than ever before. Uh, the world is an entirely different place to when we put the eight-hour workday in, and yet we still are just working exactly the same way, and I think that has to change. It's 2020, for goodness sake. And what I'd like to add to that is that what the example I gave on stage as well, right? Think of your heart as an organ, and just imagine if all that organ did was be on the high pulse, never taking the break, right? Just going forever. How long will you live for? Right? How many minutes will you survive? Right? Or, okay, let's not do the hype, you know, just a one, one, one mode of operation. Let's give it a little bit of a break. Let's say 250 beats per minute. How many hours will you survive? Right? Life is built in a duality in anything. Right, so you can't just work, 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 and respect and expect that there's not going to be a cost to pay. There will be a cost to pay, and it will be massive. So, when I think about recreation, I don't think of it as a you know the opposite of work. Right, it's it's part of my vocation, and that's the thing. I want to change the vocabulary. Stop calling it work. Start calling it again a vocation. I have a vocation, which is being an entrepreneur and doing things for the world. And to do that, I need to relax sometimes. That's part of the job. Right, And when I relax, that means that the next day I can very efficiently in four hours or less do things that people spend 24 hours on. Right? I, you know, I can call the right people, make the right shots. And I also think that the important things in life, they take very little time. Right? It can be one phone call can change the destiny of your whole company. The right phone call to the right person at the right time. Right? So, and if my brain is refreshed and I feel good, I will make that phone call. And if I'm tired, I will not do it. Right, I'll just forget about it, or and I'll be like, it's more important to sit in Excel files and just grind through. So I think it's very important to think about it. Even your breath, right? It's on and off. And imagine living your life in one long breath for seventy years, right? Just going on the up, right? That's not going to be a very pleasant experience. So I think we need to figure that out when it comes to the workplace as well. We need the on and off, right? Uh, whichever way we do it. And I think technology is both a solution and the problem. Right. If we if we abuse technology, 
right, and we stick in our emails and we start replying to everything, we will get swallowed by it and we'll try to reach inbox zero indefinitely and spend 14 hours a day doing it. But if we're smart about it, if we optimize it, if we use technology for the better, we set up autoresponders, we set up if this then that uh, mechanisms, we use smart apps, we track our health, we track how much we sleep, we can use technology to do what other people couldn't do in four hours. Yeah, absolutely right. And also, one other knock-on effect of this uh, fast-paced, constant push-push-push life is that, um, and and you'll see this in uh, salespeople, you'll see this in uh, managing directors and CEOs and and executives, Um, you'll see this in the startup world where everyone's just like trying to fail as fast as possible, etc., etc. You're overproducing adrenaline. And when you overproduce adrenaline, you overproduce cortisol. Cortisol is is okay in small doses, very useful in small doses. But if you overproduce cortisol, it erodes your immune system. This means you will get ill more often and for longer. Now, you know, my immune system is rock solid. I am very rarely ill. If I pick up a cold, it goes within 24 hours. When I used to live the old social construct life and do all of this rah, 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 push, 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 sell, 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 my immune system had been eroded from years and years and years of overproduction of cortisol. And I would get a cold and it would last two or three weeks. It would normally turn into a chest infection or something worse. Now I am absolutely rock solid. And that's because I live a stress-free life. I meditate every day. Um, I live in the moment. I don't worry about the past, the future. Radical honesty frees up my brain power from having to remember stories I've told people to maintain lies. You know, all of these things are all designed to give me laser focus on what is happening now and do things faster uh, in exactly the same way you were just saying, Dima. Do things faster, but with more accuracy, more uh, uh, you know, creativity, because I play in between work sessions. Uh, and play is an interesting thing, because when you play, um, your body produces a hormone uh, that actually is almost like a control or delete for your brain and actually clears your mind and makes you think better. So that's why I play and then work and then play and then work. All of these things are designed to optimize the way that I work, give me more free time to play and enjoy myself and you know enjoy the company of other people. But the knock-on effect is my immune system is rock solid and so I don't get ill. And if I do, it doesn't last long. I am certainly not a fan of hassle porn and uh, all the idea of 80-hour working weeks and so on and so forth, but I also cannot believe that the adepts of this concept are pushing their ideas with malicious intent. I guess it just kind of works for them, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it, of course it's working for them. Um, you know, I think that in, in any case, you know, there are always these uh, themes, these topics within any industry within any non-industry, within within life itself, where you see a trend and you go, ah, I have a voice, I have a brain, I can speak on this trend, I'm going to go and create lots of content around that trend and get it out to the world because I could build a fantastic audience of people you know, based upon this. I, I think they're doing it for the purposes of they're experts, they know what they're talking about, um, they have a, a voice, they have an opinion, of course they should you know, go and latch onto that. But it's a little bit like being a startup. In the startup world, full of gifted people, full of gifted individuals that have found something that they think they can build an app, product, service, website, um, something that will solve this problem for the masses. So they're geniuses in technical ability. They can code, they can build things. So they go ahead and do it because they can. They never stop to question 
What is the cultural effect of what I'm doing? And should I even start? Nobody in startup world does that. Like Uber did not at any point stop and think, what is the cultural impact of our service? Right? Nobody has done that. There's very few, actually. I can't say nobody's done it. There probably are some. Of course, we never hear of them because they stopped before they started. But, you know, the vast majority of startups, it's they do it because they can, not because they should. We should question more whether we should. So, of course, they're not doing it for nefarious purposes. Of course, they're not being malicious. But they didn't stop before they started. They didn't think of what are the possible cultural knock-on effects of me spreading this topic. And I think that the other interesting part is that what does it mean it's working for them? What, how do we quantify it? Does it mean it's working for them because they have 2 million followers? Is it working for them because they have a lot of money? It, their right, but how do we know their happiness, right? Happiness, I can say whatever I want. Are they truly happy? It's a very, very doubtful thing. What do they say behind closed doors when nobody is watching, right? And there's very few people who have the guts and the courage to go up on stage and say, look, I've had this following for two million, of 2 million people. I've been very successful. But what you don't know is I've been depressed for the past five years. Very few people have the courage to go up and say that. They just won't. Right, So they go up and say, well, I'm happy, you should be like me. Because that reinforces their own ego of themselves and tells them that what they've been doing is okay. Right, So admitting the fact that actually they're not happy is very difficult. And it's very interesting. I'm also um, helping out this organization, Cocoon, which is dealing with founder issues on the psychology level. And it's so fun to see that before the program starts, you have all these founders who are like all big ego and everything is fine and everybody has, everybody has these great companies and everybody is super solid. When you go a little bit behind closed doors and start dealing with them, everybody has problems, right? I'm not saying that as a bad thing for them. It's just like everybody literally has problems, every single human being on this planet, right? They're not the exception, Right, But once they start opening up, they realize, well, everybody is like me. Everybody has some mind issues. Everybody has some relationship issues. Everybody has some problems. Right, And I tend to think that uh, the people who overwork, from my experience of talking to them behind closed doors, tend to be less happy. Right, It's just not kosher to accept that and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm like working 50 uh, or like 80 hours a week and I'm super unhappy. Like it's just, it's just not kosher to do that. You can't tell your investor that you're depressed when you're raising 5 million in, uh, euros on a 50 million valuation and because you're overworking, right? You have to say, yes, I can do this for another seven years. Don't worry about it. So like the, the, the world just doesn't work that way. There is no support system for them to open up and say, this is a problem. So how do we solve this all? For example, how do we solve this on the VC side of things? There's a number of VCs out there that have uh, got the message loud and clear and they're starting to help uh, their portfolio companies work smarter instead of harder. They realize that there is a major issue in the tech industry. Um, and as I say when I talk about uh, mental health in the tech industry in my keynotes, you know, nothing will kill your investment faster than if the founder kills themselves. So it's really important that we get VCs to change the way that they support their portfolio companies. There are many who have already started doing that. Uh, there are new funds that were built around that uh, hypothesis. And by helping people to work smarter and be mentally and physically healthier, they are more likely to get a high-quality uh, product or service 
um, they are more likely to be able to get an exit um, or to attract more investment. Um, you know, they're more likely to be able to reach their goals. Uh, you know, if we continue to push people to work harder and harder and harder for that 10x, um, you know, there are so many people burning out. Uh, whenever any one of your team members burns out, the morale effect on the entire organization is terrible. It affects everybody in the organization. And it affects your deliverability of that product or service. It affects the chance of getting 10x. The smart VCs know this, and they're working to make sure that they support their founders in the right way. Yeah, and I fully agree with that. And I think in a, what, what I think is important is that two things. When you're trying to change a behavior set of people, it's very hard to do, right? The first thing you have to do is just to do it for yourself, right? Take care of yourself. Like, you know, in an airplane, you have to put on your own mask first. So if you haven't done that, it's no use screaming about it. So do whatever, whoever is listening to this, you know, take care of yourself first, step one. But step two, if you really want to change the behavior of larger set of people, you need to speak their language, right? So if you're telling them, well, you have to be mindful and spiritual and you have to do all these things, they won't listen because that's not their language, right? But you have to show them, as uh, Suraji has said, the costs, right? We live in a world that's run by money. Well, show them the numbers. Show them the cost of a dead founder. Show them the cost of a depressed worker, like actual monetary cost, right? And then when they see the numbers, they'll be like, oh, okay, I didn't understand that there's this externality. In economics, costs that are hard to predict, they're called externalities, right? So, and they're very hard to measure. But if you do, you will be surprised by how bad of an effect it is. And then when they will look at the numbers, they'll be like, well, we can't afford this. We just, we can't do this. You know, this is not sustainable. Please take care of your health, right? They will do it for the selfish reasons, but that's fine, right? Uh, they want to make more money, that's fine. I don't care about that. But if that helps people to start doing it, and as Stuart says, there's many VCs who've realized that and they're now doing it, maybe not because they, you know, want it to be a better world, but they just know they'll get a better return on investment. So it just makes monetary sense to do that. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, that's how we used to... That's how we used to sell uh, retaining people um, because, you know, when you, when you constantly have people running around on, uh, you know, revolving door policy in your, in your company, um, if you're paying somebody $100,000, uh, it is likely that it's going to cost you somewhere between thirty dollars and $50,000 to make them effective in the first place and get them to a point where they're actually returning something into the business. If you're constantly having people leave and, you know, new joiners all the time, uh, eventually you're going to spend so much money on people that it's going to sink your company. So that's how we used to sell that to people. You, you have to just sell this stuff, sell these ideas to people in bottom line terms because VCs, uh, executives, everyone understands bottom line terms. If you can, if you can show them that uh, return on investment and the cost, uh, then you can win hearts and minds. You know, the alternative is send everyone to Burning Man, but I don't think that's, uh, that's yeah. going to work out. And my last question to Dmitry and Stuart was, how hard is it to work on this topic? What did it take to come on stage for the first time to discuss this problem? Uh, nothing, <laughs> in a sense, right? In a way, it just, it just came and I, just, I have to do that, right? I just like, as I said, begin with yourself. What can you do about it? Right. And the moment I'm like, well, what can I do about it? Well, I can talk about it. Right. And uh, I'm decently good on stage, hopefully. And I was like, well, if I can get an audience and textual of almost 800, 500 people, that's a good audience. Right. Um, if you can make one tweet to your audience of 10 people, that's good. 
right? If you can just talk to your mother about it, that's also good, right? So when I thought that this is an important problem and this is an important problem for our society, well, what can I do about it? And then the solution was very simple, right? I just used the means that I have. If you have money, you can invest in these things, right? If you are good at something else, you can do that. I just happen to be good at talking. Um, for me, I've been a public speaker for a very, very long time. Um, but I had a sudden realization that pretty much everything I was speaking about um, was not actually affecting anybody in any way, shape or form. Um, I was standing on stage talking about artificial intelligence, augmented reality, blockchain, the near future. Whether I'm right or wrong, nobody will have remembered after 24 hours. Certainly not going to affect anyone's life. Um, everything I was speaking about, you couldn't buy. So it, it made no effect. And I thought, what a waste. Like, what a waste of my voice. And combined with that, you know, in 2018 alone, I lost 11 friends to suicide in the tech industry. One every single month except December. So that was, that was it. That was when I realized I need to stop talking about things that aren't important. And start talking about something that's actually going to save some people's lives or change their lives for the better. And so that's why I'm doing it. And this is it for this conversation. If you want to hear full talks of Stuart and Dmitry, you unfortunately are out of luck, at least yet, because TechChill is yet to publish the video materials from the conference. However, what is available is last year's version of Stuart's talk, and I will leave a link to it in the show notes. Now, next up in this episode is an interview with Paulina Martikainen, uh, the investment director at Maki VC. So I'm uh, Paulina Martikainen and I work as an investment director at Maki VC. Uh, what does an investment director do? Uh, excellent question. Uh, uh, it seems uh, some days like a bit of everything, um, but basically uh, I'm responsible for obviously uh, getting deal flow to the, to the firm, uh, analyzing the deal flow, executing deals, and then also working with our portfolio company. So, so a bit of everything, I would say. Right. <laughs> and what did you do before uh, joining Maki? So I was already in the VC space before Maki. So while I was actually still still in university, I co-founded this uh, pre-seed micro VC fund called Wave Ventures. Okay. So we were somehow able to raise money from uh, Supercell founders, Skype founders, and 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 so on who were crazy enough to give their money for us. And then we needed to figure out what to do with that. So that was quite a quite a good learning experience. And also uh, work worked in, uh, within the fields of marketing and communications. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was uh, in an agency side and then in-house and and so for for instance at this agency uh, there were a lot of uh, global let's say tech um, lifestyle food and also actually pharma companies mm-hmm. who wanted to for instance launch their products in the in the nordics or in finland so a lot of work around pr digital marketing and sort of product messaging or product uh, positioning for instance right. Although I studied strategy and everyone ends up in VC or, or consulting, but, uh, but it worked in a bit of different field. And how did that uh, micro VC uh, fund uh, do at the end? Uh, it still exists. Uh, wow. Yeah, so we uh, invested in a very in very cool Nordic companies, but it was originally set up in a way that so we were all st- still students. So it was seven guys and me. So a good learning experience in in many ways. Uh, but it was set up in a way that that we wanted to be part of, or sort of manage it ourselves for a few years, and then we wanted to hand it over to a sort of a new generation of, of students, so that mm-hmm. they could then also gain the same experiences of of venture capital and of entrepreneurship. So 
Maki VC, how is it different from any other VC in the Nordics whom we see more and more of? Uh, excellent question as well. Um, so what we say is that, so first of all, maybe if I introduce Maki a bit, so we are an 80 million euros fund and invest in seed and series A stages. And with seed, I mean all shades of seed. So it can be also very early stuff. Like we've done some deals with, which were like pre-product, pre-revenue even. Uh, ticket size wise, basically initial tickets ranging from uh, 200k up to 2 million euros can, we've been fairly flexible, flexible on that front. And what we say is that we invest in deep tech and brand driven companies. And in practical terms, that means that our portfolio at the moment is everything from uh, quantum computing to new materials and processes, uh, food tech, meth tech. But then we also have the more, so more sort of a typical uh, VC cases. So enterprise SaaS, fintech, uh, games, uh, and, and entertainment. Exactly. It's karaoke singer. So, so yeah, so fairly, fairly broad focus actually. And, and it's a question of what, what makes us different. So, so a couple of things. So first of all, the way Maki was set up was that we actually, so VCs typically primarily raised from, uh, from big institutional investors. So we did it a bit other way around. So we actually did our whole first close, uh, primarily with private wealthy individuals. So we have, um, um, Skype founder, um, Niklas Sandström, or we just saw, uh, Timo Soininen, uh, CEO of Small Giant Games, uh, or Supercell founders and, and so on. So, uh, sort of exited, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, backing the fund. Uh, and then on top of that, we took some institutional money. So great institutions from Finland. And then also, for instance, Tencent from Asia or Mistletoe Venture Partners from Asia. And so we try and leverage this, this sort of a network also for the good of our portfolio companies then of course and and then maybe on a sort of a more practical level this actually came a bit of as a surprise for us but but we've gotten some good feedback from entrepreneurs on this so 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 basically we don't believe in consensus uh, and so we actually make our decision for, or try and make our decisions fairly fast. So basically it only requires one, one person from our uh, investment team who is like super, super excited about the deal and, and hundred percent convinced about the vision that the team has and, and he or she can basically pursue the deal. And this is actually, we've realized of course, very, or the partners of course knew how other funds maybe, maybe function and had some experiences from there, but, but, um, this is something that we've learned that that the entrepreneurs actually have have appreciated. Right. And in your uh, speech uh, on stage, you mentioned Maki House. What's that? <laughs> so that's how we we actually call the sort of a um, community that we have, and and so we see that. Um, so our lean team, our core team, is fairly lean. So we are. Uh, four people in the deal side, uh, so two partners and then two investment directors, myself and my colleague Pavo, and then two people otherwise uh, making sure that the fund runs smoothly. For instance, our CFO Josefina, who's amazing, and then then an assistant as well, and and so. On top of this, we have the LP base that I said, which is actually consisting of 73 uh, LPs, which is like not, not the typical setup actually for, for a VC firm. And, and then our portfolio companies and then, of course, some other industry experts as well. And to this sort of a community, we, re we refer to as, as a mucky house. So we like to like to, I don't know, keep keep our keep our network close. 
What's in the name anyway? What does it mean, Maki? Maki, uh, excellent question. And I hope that I had a better narrative around this. I still need to work on that. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So the two partners, uh, their last names are Kivi Maki and Paolo Maki. And <laughs> we've tried to Amazing. twist it into, I don't know, Makiing history or making history. But it's like, yeah, we still need to work on that. I, I, I haven't... Yet, uh, yet, crack that. No, I think I think it's a good story. It's a good story by itself. This is <laughs> this is perfect. Are you still investing from your first fund? Yeah, so it's a first fund. Uh, we were officially launched only two years ago, so first time fund. Right. Yes. And uh, how big was it? The first fund? Uh, Eighty million euros. 80 million. Yeah. Great. So let's turn to your uh, speech. So you did your uh, keynote at the conference. So you were talking about uh, the importance of marketing and branding and communications for early stage startups, particularly deep tech startups. Yeah. Uh, can you just summarize it? Uh, uh, what's, what's the main idea of the, of the speech? I guess the core was that typically, I think, uh, even if you understood the, the sort of a strategic role that marketing can play or branding can play for an early stage startup, it's like in, in our experience often overlooked when it comes to deep tech startups. And so the, the core message was, I guess, to, to pay attention, uh, to that side also with deep tech startups and, and also, also, um, especially since we work with very, so we have, fairly large uh, portfolio already now and, and some cool deep tech companies there. And what we've tried to emphasize with them is that because they often start with like fairly, of course, limited team in the beginning. Uh, and oftentimes there is, there, it can be that there is like no uh, commercial people in the team. So scientists and, and so on. So, so what we try to emphasize is that when they actually, that they need to start uh, thinking about marketing and branding early on. And when they do, there has to be someone who actually has the commercial understanding and sort of can start uh, from actually forming that value proposition for the company, right. uh, which often is like uh, either it is not done <laughs> uh, or, or it's outsourced, which I think is a very bad idea. So what is better, not done or outsourced? <laughs> it's an excellent question. Uh, of course, I mean, outsourcing can maybe work in some situations, but but uh, then you really need to know what you're buying. And oftentimes, if you, if you do not come from that commercial background, it's fairly hard to actually outsource. And the value proposition is like at su such core of the company that it, it should come from within the company. Uh, or the vision should come from within the company also because the value proposition actually should act as a glue between the company's different functions and help in making these critical business, business trade-offs, for instance, when it comes to defining your sales arguments or, or your um, next product features. So, and this topic uh, for you, it's coming from your experience in uh, working in uh, PR and marketing yourself. Basically, and it's also, so it's something that, that we actually discuss a lot with our team as well and, and, and with the partners and with, with, uh, with other people in the team. So it's something that the whole Maki team has sort of very close to, close to our heart because we actually think that a lot of value is sort of left on the table if the, if the companies do not pay attention to these things. Right. And is this something that you're trying to uh, work on with your portfolio companies? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so for instance, with every new entrant to the portfolio, we hold this sort of a brand lab. 
together with an external agency uh, to spar. And, and we actually so sit down, talk about resources. And actually, oftentimes, it it's, depends a bit on the stage of the company. So there can be some other pain points. But mm-hmm. especially with our early, early deals, it, it often goes down to the or comes down to the value proposition and trying to um, twist it a little. Uh, but then, of course, if, if it's so that it's clear that um, the current team does not have the sort of a needed skills to get it further than might be that then it's time to start allocating resources into recruiting more people into the team. But definitely something that we work work closely with with our portfolio companies. Right. So what I also noticed in the, the keynote was that you were talking about three things. You were talking about marketing, you were talking about branding and about communications. So do you think that there should be like one person on the early stage who would embody all three of these uh, competences or uh, how should it work? Uh, so rarely there is such a hyper multi-talented uh, person who can take care of all of that. So what I said in the uh, presentation is that um, whenever we, in this sort of a first check, whenever we realize that there is a need to maybe bring some more commercial people on board and someone who can own the, or take the lead in forming the value proposition, uh, there are, it can be like a CMO or it can be, I don't know, chief commercial officer or whatever. It can be actually different backgrounds or, and it depends on the case, how you are going to build your whole, uh, commercial site of the company. Uh, and, and even if we talk about only CMOs, there are different profiles, of course. So some that have core strengths in, uh, in branding. Some are more, more tuned to product marketing. Some that are more performance marketing, uh, people. Uh, so of, of course it's like case by case. What, what's the specific talent or what, what is the most crucial, crucial talent to have in the company at, right at that stage? And, and then, and then of course, later on, it's about then sort of balancing that team with the, with the skill sets that are still missing. Right. Uh, do you already see this effort of yours uh, working with your portfolio teams? Um, of course, it's still early days for our portfolio companies. Uh, so I, I cannot say that, that, uh, let's say there would be any uh, number to put in, in, in terms of like how well it, it is working. Uh, but uh, I mean, now, we have been around for two years and of course it's time, time for uh, our first investments to now pursue their next funding rounds. And I, and I have to say it looks promising. So, uh, so, so I'm hoping it's, it's, uh, it's working. And at least we've gotten some very good feedback from our portfolio. So. Right. And what is your general take on the, on the ecosystem in the Nordics and the Baltics? So the part that you cover geographically. Uh, broad question. Where should I start? Um, exciting times, uh, to be in the Nordics and, and, uh, for instance, at the stage that we invest in, which, which was like seed or sweet spot in, uh, seed, seed stage can also do some early, early A rounds. Um, exciting times. I think, uh, Finland is, uh, is extremely, uh, interesting at the moment. And of course, that's sort of our home base. So we cover that quite thoroughly. Um, Sweden, of course, uh, lots of uh, good deal flow, also lots of money in the market. Um, Norway still, I think, is a bit like um, not as developed maybe or as mature as maybe other Nordic countries, but I'm actually very, very keen on following them more closely myself. 
there is some uh, amazing um, tech um, tech there, uh, but I think the, again the sort of a commercialization side and the sort of ambition to actually build highly scalable mm-hmm. technology companies is then like another question. But I actually hope that our approach is something that can that can sort of help help on that. Uh, Denmark also, of course. Uh, uh interesting interesting market and maybe not as crowded yet on the on the fund side as as for instance uh Sweden or Finland even and and uh so what we our geographical focus is in the nordics and and baltics but of course uh, and now we're here here in Riga in Latvia yep. um uh but uh, but actually we could technically invest anywhere anywhere globally or in in Europe um anywhere but of course we are fairly fairly lean team still so so have limited resources in terms of like actively actively scouting and being sort of on the ground in other other Mm. countries so are you feeling this like tightening competition because at some point it was looking like uh, last year every month there would be a new uh, seed series a stage fund in the nordics uh honestly so I, I'm not sure. Maybe we we just look for deals that others are not maybe that interested, or or I don't know. We don't see that or face that much like direct competition actually when it comes to the to the funding routes. Can also be that we are a bit earlier than maybe the the biggest funds, for instance. So we sort of act as a feeder feeder for them. Uh, so myself haven't really really uh, sort of felt the the. Uh, competition in that sense I, and i think it's actually great for the entrepreneurs that there is like more more money available and sort of that the tables are turning in a way that that they can also be picky in terms of in terms of who they want to be uh, working with them for the next 10 years and also they can sort of then then start to be more or challenge the the vc side more in terms of what value the vcs can bring to the table right Okay, Paulina, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. These were all my questions and uh, yeah, good luck with uh, my TVC. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a million. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at podcast at tech EU. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay home if you can and wash your hands regularly. Have a good week. Talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye.